Good morning. Open your Bibles up to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. The message this morning is on the workings of the Holy Spirit. We have been on a study for several weeks in regard to obtaining greater power. And we talked about how that we obtain that power through the name of Jesus, the Word of God, the blood of Jesus, all those different things in regard to spiritual warfare. And last week, I wanted to also share with you how that we obtain power through the Holy Spirit. And I would like to deal with this subject in a lot greater depth than what we could, just because we have not really covered uh, through the ministry in the, for a long, long time the subject of the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Last week I was unable to record the teaching, and we have a lot of people that listen to these on a regular basis online. So let me just take maybe ten minutes of this message to just briefly go over, and I won't look up all the scriptures, but I'll mention them, what we shared with you last week in regard to the Holy Spirit and the direction that we were heading. And then I want to focus on one particular aspect this morning. So in this particular study on the Holy Spirit, we said there are three things that we wanted to cover, and two of them we covered last week. Concerning the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, we, we talked about the personality, first of all, of the Holy Spirit, then secondly, the deity of the Holy Spirit, and then I'd like to deal with the working of the Holy Spirit. Concerning the personality of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. And we use that word person not in the sense of a man. The Bible says in Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one Lord, and thou shalt love him with all thy heart, all thy soul, all thy mind, all thy strength, and so forth. We serve one God, not three. And our God is one divine spirit that is eternally manifested as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. All those words are very significant. Because the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. There was never a time when they were not. The Son didn't come into being at a certain point. The Holy Spirit didn't come into being at a certain point nor did the Father. They are eternal and they are one and they are all equal. But concerning the person of the Holy Spirit, we use the word person not in the sense of like a human person, but in the sense of one that has rights to something. Since I'm not teaching on the Trinity this morning, I'm not going to try to get into that in depth or we'll just get sidetracked. But the third person of the Trinity is the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not just some mere influence or power. The cults teach, for example, that the Holy Spirit is just some mere influence, some mere power. And the scriptures say other than that. The scriptures show, first of all, that the Holy Spirit is a personality, a, a person. He is the third person of the Godhead. If you take the Greek language, and, it, and in one sense it's similar to our language, and you take personal pronouns, 
We have personal pronouns like he, she, and it. In the Greek language, they'll talk about masculine, feminine, and neuter. He, she, and it would be he, masculine, she, feminine, it, neuter. Whenever the scriptures in the Greek language speak of the Holy Spirit, he is never referred to as a she. He's never referred to as an it. And that may not, you you may think, well, I don't really need to mention that, but yet, I think I mentioned last week, there's a very popular book out today that Christians are marveling over. But in in the reading of it, they bring out the implication that God is feminine. And when asked one time, when asked a person why they would think that that's such a great book, the comment was made, well, if a person, for example, like a woman was abused by their father, they may have a hard time accepting God the Father because they think of that father image of their father in the past. So, you know, it's this rational, rationalization phony baloney that, that if they can relate to God as their mother, maybe we can reach them. <laughs> and I, I just, I crack up sometimes at what people write and say and do to think that they're winning souls. When we, when I get done with this, you're going to see it, it. It isn't our logic and reason that brings people to Christ. It's the Holy Spirit. And He doesn't need our help. He doesn't need our logic and reason and fun and games and all the things that people come up with. But anyways, when the Scriptures speak of the Holy Spirit, it always if a, if a personal pronoun is used, it's always the personal pronoun in the masculine that is he. We read 1 Corinthians 12:11, we read John 16:8. We'll look at John 14:26 to whereby you can see what I'm talking about. He says here Jesus talking about the Holy Spirit, but the comforter which is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things into remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. He was going to continue the ministry of Christ on in his church. But he didn't say, she will teach you all things. He didn't say, it will teach you all things, like it's just some kind of mere influence or power. But he, it is the third person of the Godhead. And there are other ways you can see this. The Bible speaks about how that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. Well, you can't grieve a power. You can't grieve a mere influence. He has a will. 1 Corinthians 12, 11 speaks about the gifts of the Spirit and how that he divides them severally to every man as he wills. So he has a will, a mere influence or power does not have a will. Ephesians 4.30 speaks about grieving the Holy Spirit. Here in John 14, we read out that he will teach us all things. A mere influence doesn't teach. He comforts. A mere influence doesn't just produce comfort. I mean, if you know, if we want to receive comfort from someone, then it, then that person is a comforter. And it goes on and on in many other places. He reproves. He appoints. He directs. He searches, and on and on. Acts thirteen two sixteen six to seven. Revelation three twenty two. 1 Corinthians 2.11, 1 Timothy 4.1, 1, 
Revelation 2.7. These are all scriptures we looked at last week, and I didn't get on tape, but I'd like to get them on. That's the only reason I mention them. The Holy Spirit is not some mere influence or power, but the third person of the Godhead. And you can take, for example, your your liberal cults and um, modernism in regard to denominationalism deny the uh, personality of the Holy Spirit. But certain scriptures like in Zechariah 4.6, if you substituted power for spirit, because they say the Holy Spirit is nothing more than mere power or influence, you'd be redundant in your first. You'd make no sense. Whereas Zechariah 4.6 says, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. So if you rephrase that, it's not by might nor by power, but by power, saith the Lord, it makes no sense. And Acts 10.38 would be another illustration of that same thing. So the Holy Spirit is not an it or a mere influence. He is the third person of the Godhead. The only reason people may struggle with that is because they think of God as a man. And so as a result, they say, well, how can a man and spirit be one? Well, God is not a man. His essence is other than what we are. And so, therefore, it's difficult for them to comprehend. They can't even comprehend now that God is three in one, but he is. It's something that we take by faith. Secondly, the deity of the Holy Spirit. Throughout the scriptures, the Bible speaks about the Holy Spirit being equal to the Father, equal to the Son. And there are many places where there are so what are referred to in theology as the Trinity scriptures, where they are grouped together. Matthew 28:19 is one where he says he commissioned the church to go forth and to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, equating them together. Uh, 1 Peter 1, 2, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. These are all scriptures that point in that direction. And if you take Genesis 1, 1, and also verse 4, which I don't have up there, and verse 26, you'll see the plurality of the Godhead and now that it was the Holy Spirit that did the creating. And yet in John 1, 3 and 14, you read while, while how those things were created by the Logos and the Logos was with God and the Logos was God. You can't divide God up. You cannot divide the Godhead up. If the Holy Spirit is working, the Father is working, and the Son is working. If the Son is working, the Holy Spirit is working, and the Father is working, and all the way through, because otherwise you would be dividing God up, and you you do not, we don't do that. And the Bible speaks about how the, the Holy Spirit is called God. The Father is called God in John six twenty seven. The Son is called God in John six sixty nine. And if you look at Acts chapter 5 and verse 3, we'll read another scripture and then I'd like to move on beyond what the foundation was that we laid last week. Here's the case of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 and how that they had agreed together to lie about the price of a sum of, the sum of a uh, property that they had sold and God judged them for their lying instantaneously by them being uh, put to death. But Peter, rebuking Ananias before this, said to him in verse 2, 
Well, let's read in verse 1. A certain man named Ananias and Sapphira, his wife, was sold a possession, kept back part of the price, his wife being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the price of the land? They evidently told the leaders of the church, or maybe the whole church, what money had been sold, and then it was given to the church because at that point they were all living in common. He goes on to say, while it remains, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. He said, you haven't lied unto the church. You've lied unto God by saying that you sold it for so much and gave all of that to the church and turn around and we find out that in reality you didn't sell it for that. It sold for a whole lot more and you were just trying to get the kudos for everybody thinking that you were giving of everything. But the statement was made. He said, you've not lied unto men, but you've lied unto God. And there are other places where the divine attributes of God are attributed to the Holy Spirit. He's omnipresent in Psalm 139.7. There David said, where can I go from the presence of thy spirit? If I go up, I go down. He mentions going anywhere, he's there. He's omniscient. That means that he is all-knowing. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 12. And he's omnipotent, that is, he is all-powerful by the fact that Genesis 1-2 says he created all things. So, the Holy Spirit is a divine personality. He is the third person of the Godhead. And he is equal to the Father and to the Son. Now, all of that just as kind of a, a brief summary of something of the deeper truths of God. But what I really would want to focus on for more attention is the works of the Holy Spirit. And here we need to have the discernment of when the Holy Spirit is working. Because to that degree, can we know when he's working or how we are to move with the Spirit? To that degree, can we obtain greater power in our life? That's the theme of what we're working on. The Bible shows that the Holy Spirit works in various ways. You can see by the list that is up here, and I'm not going to teach on all these things, but some of these things we'll bring up in the weeks to come. He does the work of regenerating. That is, he is the one that supernaturally causes a man to receive a new heart and to be born again. He does the work of quickening, enlightening, convicting, comforting, drawing, working faith and repentance. Faith and repentance are a gift from God. He indwells the believer. He teaches the believer. He cleanses the believer. He leads. He assures. He witnesses. He, he seals. He assists. He transforms. He preserves. He confirms. He endows. He does all these things. And yet many times when these things are happening, none of it is attributed to his glory. None of it is attributed to the Holy Spirit as it should be. So what I want to do is get into some studies on the working of the Holy Spirit so that we can have discernment to see how how and when God is working in our life. Now, just as us as humans, our works are not limited to uh, 
one kind or way that something is carried out. I mean, we we as individuals, we have a will, and we may choose to do one thing one way and one thing another way because it's our will. The Holy Spirit is the same way. His works are regulated by His will and by His purpose. And one thing you cannot do is put Him in a box. One thing you cannot do is assume that if He does something one way, then it's always going to be that way every other time. You can't put God in a box. You can't tell him what to do. God is sovereign. And God is one in which when he operates and works, he may work in one way in one situation and turn around and work in another way in another situation. And that doesn't mean that one is him and one is the Holy Spirit and one is not. And people have done that and oftentimes got themselves into some kind of an arrogant, legalistic form of bondage. You have to let God be God and have discernment when he works to be able to understand his power and his workings. A good illustration of this, and and you can see we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11, but a good illustration of this would be in the ministry of Jesus. We're told here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11, these are the gifts of the Spirit that operate within the believer that's been baptized in the Holy Spirit. And there are nine supernatural gifts here. And these are not man-made gifts or man-talented gifts. These gifts that are here are the gifts of God and they're supernatural. We're not saying, and this is where sometimes people get off, I mean, let's leave the gifts of the Spirit as they are. When he talks about the gifts of faith or the gifts of healing or the gifts of uh, discerning of spirits, let's leave them where the Bible shows them to be. These are supernatural gifts of healing, not medical gifts of healing. These are supernatural gifts of discerning the spirits, not not psychology and psychiatry. You know what I'm saying? Uh, Leave the supernatural where it is. One thing that the believer has is a, a, a higher, greater degree of anointing and power to bring forth supernatural things that the unbeliever or the non baptized Holy Spirit believer is capable of, especially the unbeliever. But that raises a question which we'll address in most of this message. Can God use the unbeliever to bring forth his workings? And we'll show you in a little bit where, yes, he can, and yes, he does. But we're not confusing. Don't confuse the two. We who are baptized in the Holy Spirit have the gifts given unto us to whereby God will manifest these supernatural gifts through us But notice what he says here in verse 11. He says, all these work. He talked about the gift of, uh, in verse 10, the gifts of working of miracles, prophecy, discerning of spirits, tongues, interpretation of tongues, and the word of wisdom, word of knowledge, and so forth. All these work that one and the self-same spirit divides to every man severally as he will. Sovereignly is what severally means. Sovereignly as he wills. They are at the discretion of the Holy Spirit. They're not at our discretion. They are at his. 
and how these work can vary. In the ministry of Jesus, for example, just take a few illustrations. There were times where the workings of miracles came across. There were some times where these miracles, the Holy Spirit would impress upon him that they were to be done in public. They were to be done so people would see these miracles and God would be glorified. The changing of water into wine, for example, was a miracle. And it was something that was done before all because it was done at the wedding of Cana. Everyone saw that miracle occur. Or at least many did. Or take the raising of the dead of Lazarus. Now, whenever you're dealing with the raising of the dead, that's obviously a miracle because if that person has died, it's a miracle for that person to have the Spirit come back on into them. That's not a healing. It's a miracle. And when it comes to like the raising of Lazarus, he purposely waited several days and before everybody that was there, he said, roll the tomb away. And he spoke out a word and he said, Lazarus, come forth. And out came Lazarus. And that was a uh, tremendous miracle that everyone saw. But does it mean that every time, for example, he raised the dead, it was always done in that matter? No. Because in the case of Jairus, when Jairus' daughter had died, and he got to the house, and he told him, be not afraid, but uh, to hold fast to his faith. And when he got to the house, and he went into the room where the daughter laid, there were people that were all being negative and uh, making a fuss about how the, she had died and how the Jairus had wasted Jesus' time to get him there. Jesus didn't say to all of those, just be quiet and watch this. Just be quiet. We're going to show you something here. Just cool it. No, he said, get out of here. He told them all to leave. It was not a public demonstration of the power of God coming forth. He said, get them out of here. They did not see him raise her from the dead. The parents, or Jairus did. Peter did. Uh, and John, I believe, was in that group. But it wasn't something that was a public display like it was with Lazarus. There were times, for example, when blind men would come to Jesus and he would say, uh, be it done of thee as thy faith is, so be it done of thee. And he would speak a word and their eyes would be made open. But when blind Bartimaeus came to him and wanted healing for his eyes, he made spit on the ground and put it on his face and said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Why did he tell one to go wash the mud off his face so that he would see, and why would others, he just speak a word and it was done. Why did he do that? Because the Holy Spirit, for some reason, some purpose, we assume it was to give Bartimaeus an opportunity to act his faith, but the Holy Spirit may have had a totally different purpose or reason why that that was to be carried out a certain way. I mean, that power was not in Jesus as a man. It was the divine power of God coming through him as he yielded and was anointed by the gifts of the Spirit that are mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. But the working of the Holy Spirit, there were times where it was to be a public miracle. There were times where it was not to be a public miracle. There were times whereby it was a, a, a public instant healing spoken by the Word. There were times where it was not. So there are many, we could spend a lot of time on this. You can't put the Holy Spirit in a box on how he's going to do things. This is where you need to have discernment and you have to be sensitive to the inward voice from within. 
It also includes, and I'm going to throw something at you here this morning that if you're a serious student of the Word of God, you're going to have to think about. It also includes, or we should say his workings, are not limited to the saved. His works, and I'm not talking about the gifts of the Spirit here, but I'm talking about his works. His works are not limited to those that are saved. We raise a question. Can he use an unsaved person to bring forth his will? Yeah, he can, and he does. In Matthew 7, for example, in verse 13, if you turn over there, there will be in the lives of many people good works that come forth. They are, they're not the works of the devil. They're good works. But that person is not saved by those good works. The Holy Spirit can use that individual to bring forth a good work, but that doesn't mean that that individual somehow earns the right to heaven or earns the right to his relationship with God as being now in Christ by just doing some good deed. This is what people a lot of times assume. A person dies and then at the funeral they'll often talk about all the good things that that person did. And they'll talk about how they know they've gone to heaven. But we don't go to heaven by our works. We go to heaven by God's grace and by believing by faith that Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sins. But in Matthew chapter 7, we've read this many times, of course. But listen to what he says here. Enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leads unto life, few there will be that find it. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns, figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every good, every tree that brings not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Therefore, wherefore by their fruits you shall know them. Then he went on to say, Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. And many will say to me in that day, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And haven't we cast out demons in thy name? And haven't we done many wonderful works? And I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that worketh iniquity. Now to me, I think he's also, he's qualifying there that when he makes the statement that a good tree cannot bring forth an evil tree cannot bring forth good fruit and vice versa, is not to be taken in an absolute sense. Because here he talks about some that do good things. They prophesied in his name. What's wrong with that? They cast out demons in his name. What's wrong with that? They did a whole lot of good and wonderful deeds and works. But he says, I don't know you. You see, when a person is born again, there's going to be a change that occurs in their life because they receive a new heart. And they're going to grow and mature in their faith. There'll be times where they slip up and fail and 
And as they ask for forgiveness, the blood of Jesus cleanses and forgives us for the sins we've committed along the way. But you'll know a man or woman of God or child of God. You'll know them because there'll be a lifestyle pattern, a lifestyle change that occurs. It doesn't mean that they will never have any good works come forth from them. But what it means is that those works will endure and they will they will persevere and they will make it to the end and there will be a, a pattern of a righteous lifestyle and love for Jesus that transpires. They'll have a their their works will be manifested by well, take the fruits of the Spirit, an unselfish love, a rejoicing in uh adversity. When times of trial and testing come, there'll be a, a peace in their heart. They'll be known as an individual that, that trusts the Lord and rejoices in the Lord and is known for their unselfishness and so forth. But there'll be a pattern of growing and maturing and there'll be a change that occurs from what they were to what they now are. There'll be a definite, a definite change that one can see. Look at first, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 10. There is a, a growth that is in their life, a maturity that's in their life. It is a, salvation is a lifestyle change. It's something that they don't just produce good fruit for a short period of time and then that's it. If they go back to their old pernicious ways, there's no fruit, no proof that they have a new heart. They did it for a while, but it didn't endure. Now, the scriptures over and over again speak of this, like in the parable of the sower. The seed of the word is sown, and they bring forth, they that hear the word, they receive it with joy, and they bring forth fruit for a season. But when it's tried, when it's tested, when it's put to the fire, then it's gone. They don't persevere. They don't endure. Well, he doesn't say that they are the ones that go on to receive the rewards and blessing of the Lord. He's, imp- he's implying there that out of the four of, the, of those that come forth, only one is true. In Second Peter chapter 1, the Bible tells us that we're to make our calling and election a sure thing. How do we do that? By having a lifestyle change in which... We grow in love. We grow in joy. We grow in various different things. Listen to what he says here. Whereby, verse 4, are given unto us exceedingly great and precious promises that by these we might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. We demonstrate the divine nature of God and how that we have a new heart that has escaped the depraved nature that we once had, which is that corruptible nature in the world, we do that by what? He says, give all diligence to add to your faith virtue, virtue, knowledge, knowledge, temperance, temperance, endurance, endurance, godliness, godliness, brotherly love, to brotherly love, love. If these things be in you and abound, then there that's the fruit that Jesus is talking about which is an assurance that one will make it in the kingdom. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3, Paul writing to Timothy makes this statement, for example. 
In 2 Timothy 1.3, he says, I thank God whom I serve from my forefathers with a pure conscience and that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day. Now, Paul didn't make the statement here when he says, I thank God whom I serve from my forefathers. This is worded different in the Greek. It is, I thank God whom the God whom I serve as my forefathers did. The, the, the word from there doesn't imply that, you know, we go back now to the early, the early days of his forefathers and how that he served the Lord from the early point. We know that wouldn't be true because he got born again on the road to Damascus. The word from is not there. I should have written it in my Bible what the exact Greek is, but what he's talking about is how that he serves God like his forefathers did with their whole heart. And then he describes that serving and that faith of his forefathers. It is one that has a pure conscience, and it is one that without ceasing, it has a pure conscience and one that has remembrance of him. Well, let me read that again. Whom I serve from my, like my forefathers with a pure conscience that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers day and night. And uh, I thought it talked about more growth there than what what I guess it's implied. But the implication is it's a lifestyle change. And, of course, in Matthew 10 you have uh, discipleship that is brought forth in that old chapter and how the the disciple is not above his master, but he's as his master. And that he talks about the trials, the tests, the persecution, the growth, the choices that will be made sometimes choosing, having to choose between father and mother or choosing Jesus. But the disciple will always seek to follow and serve the Lord. So the point is that it is a a growth that occurs. But the works of the Holy Spirit can also be manifested through a person that is not saved, and that is not a sign that that individual is saved by that good work. Think, for example. Can you think of any in the Bible that were unsaved or really questionable as to being saved and yet were used by God to do something? How about Balaam, for example? I mean, he was a prophet for hire. And he prophesied in Numbers 23, a prophecy that we refer to all the time and that God is not a man that he should lie, neither yet the Son of Man. And yet Paul goes, or, or in the gospel, in the epistle of Jude, he speaks about how that Balaam was false. Certainly questionable. How about Saul, King Saul? Can any debate that the anointing and power and presence of the Holy Spirit came upon Saul. He prophesied when the power of the Holy Spirit came upon He was used for a certain season by God to deliver Israel from their enemies. That's how David came into in, in place by slewing Goliath. But who was king under that realm? Saul. And yet the end of Saul, look at the end of the life of Saul. He was out hunting David down like he was a dog seeking to kill him. He had a murderer's heart. Hello? 
How about King Artaxerxes? Turn over to the book of Nehemiah. There's no reason that we should ever believe that uh, King Artaxerxes was a righteous man that was born again. But yet God chose to use this individual to provide the means wherewith Nehemiah could go forth and the city of Jerusalem could be restored with the things that were being provided by the king. God moved upon the heart of Artaxerxes to do a good work. In Nehemiah chapter 1, it says the words of Nehemiah, See, did I get specific? I want chapter 2. In the month, it came to pass, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, the king, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it unto the king. That's what Nehemiah did. He was a cupbearer. Now, I had been before time sad in his presence. I had not been sad. He always had a joyful, positive countenance. But wherefore the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad? I mean, he could tell in in Nehemiah that something was bothering him, something was wrong. Why is thy countenance sad, seeing that thou art not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of the heart. And then I was afraid to say anything, and said unto the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my countenance be sad, when the city, the place of my father's sepulchres, lies waste, and the gates thereof are consumed with fire. So he's talking about Jerusalem and how that it was being uh, overcome and destroyed and it, and it was laid waste. And the king said unto him, Well, for what dost thou make request? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said unto the king, If it please the king, and if thy servant hath found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldest send me unto Judah, unto the sepulcher, my father's sepulchers, that I may build it. And the king said unto me, the queen sitting by him, How long will thy journey be? When will thou return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set for him a time. And moreover, I said unto the king, If it please the king, let letters be given unto me to the governors beyond the river, that I may convey me, that they may convey me over to Judah. And a letter from Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the palace, which appeared to to the house for the walls of the city, and on and on and on. And all that was given unto him, and he was sent on his way. In other words, the Holy Spirit was moving upon King Artaxerxes to do something that was a blessing for the nation of Israel. I mean, that would be like God moving upon Amajinadad today, to provide relief for Israel in some kind of a disaster that they had gone through. Who can think of it? But God sometimes used heathen kings and heathen people to carry out his good works, to carry out his will. What about Judas Iscariot? I mean, is there anyone in here that thinks that Judas was saved? I don't think anybody would think that. I mean, after he betrayed the Lord, he went and was sorrowed by that. And the religious leaders to whom he sold out Jesus to said, what's that to us? And then he went out and he hung himself. He killed himself. Committed murder. But when Jesus was sitting at the table and said, there's one that is here amongst us that will betray me, 
They didn't all just sit around the table and said, oh, that's easy. That's a no-brainer, you know. That's Judas. Everybody knows that. Man, he's, we've tried to tell the Lord all about him. They all said, who is it? Who is it? Who is it? It wasn't like Judas was one that was so corrupt and misguided and so carnal and so ungodly that it was an obvious thing that, that he was the black sheep of the family. They didn't know who it was. He obviously had been doing some good things with them, right along with them, honoring the Lord, praising the Lord, uh, listening to His Word by what, how He spoke, by how He acted, by what He did. There wasn't something there that was extremely different that gave Him away like He was not one of the twelve. You know what I'm saying? And so, obviously, when we say the workings of the Holy Spirit can be manifested forth in an unbeliever. We're not trying to imply that they that if he would use someone to do something good, that good work doesn't necessarily prove salvation. If it's a lifestyle change that that occurs, then you know that they've been born again. But just because somebody does a few good deeds or a few good works is not an indication that they necessarily have a new heart. It is just the influence of the Holy Spirit that is upon this earth that is preventing sin and preventing um, ungodliness from overtaking the earth. It is His influence that is upon this earth. And His influence can be directly or can be indirectly through the church. We are called the salt of the earth. We are called the light of the earth. And so there's an influence about us. When you, if you have a lifestyle to whereby what you say and how you act is something that is from a new heart and it's, it's, it's a born again experience, it's a righteous experience. When you get amongst unbelievers, have you ever noticed that they clean up their mouth, that they watch what they say, that they watch what they do, they get embarrassed about something? I've been many times in situations where People will just start spouting off and being vulgar and negative and angry and whatnot. And they may not see me. And then all of a sudden they look over and they see me and then they'll go, Oops, sorry, Mike. I didn't, uh, sorry about that. You know what I'm saying? Because they know, they observe you over a long period of time and they go, they know that you don't talk like them. You don't think like them. You don't act like them. And yet at the same time, you'll hear about people that, well, they go to church, and you may hear some good work that they've done, but you'll be around them long enough, and, and, and there's little difference between them and the world. I mean, they may not, they know how to instantly kind of clean it up and act right, but if you take the restraints off of them, what comes out is just a lot of vulgar and a lot of hot-headedness, a lot of meanness, a lot of nastiness, and you really have to wonder whether or not that person's really been born again. Jesus said we'd know by the fruit. Not that we should be trying to be fruit inspectors, but I'm trying to make a point. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 7. The Bible says that in the latter days, the Holy Spirit will be withdrawn from the earth. Just prior to tribulation is what many believe that this will occur. And at that point, men will go into such a state of ungodliness and immorality that it'll usher in the final judgment of God upon this earth. 
And there'll be great persecution and immorality and everything else upon this earth because he who, what is told here in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 7, it's talking about when or when will the Antichrist come forth or what will be some of his signs. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. We beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that you be not soon shaken in mind or troubled by spirit nor by word or by letter as from us as the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you. For that day shall not come except there come a falling away first and the man of sin be revealed the son of perdition, that being Antichrist, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God shows himself that he is God. He makes him out to be a God sitting in a temple here that has not yet been built, if that's in Israel. And he exalts himself above all, like old Nebuchadnezzar. Remember you not that when I was with you, I told you these things, and now you know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. Something is preventing him from coming forth. Something is stopping his influence from coming forth. He will be basically Satan incarnate, bringing forth the full nature of Satan in a deceptive way. But Paul goes on to say, for the mystery of iniquity, it's already working. It doth already work. Only he who now prevents will prevent, literally, not letteth, but prevents until he, whoever that is, will be taken out of the way. Many believe when the Holy Spirit's influence of godliness and righteousness will be removed, then Satan will be able to move rapidly and quickly during that period of tribulation whereby immorality will immediately take over this earth in a very short period of time. So what we're saying is that the Holy Spirit right now restrains sin from coming forth. And he can do that in various ways, but one way he does it is by moving upon men to do that which is good and right and resisting the temptation to do that which is wrong. That doesn't necessarily mean the person is is a is born again and insane. It just means that they are capable of bringing forth a good work. Not that is a good work unto salvation, but it is still a good work. Look at Genesis chapter 20. Do you remember, for example, how that um, the king here, and I wrote down Genesis 20 in verse 2. I don't think that's the right verse, but I'll try to find the right verse. But in Genesis chapter 20, when Abraham and Sarah, uh, King Abimelech, was withheld from having any relationships with Sarah, whom he thought was Abraham's sister, what is it that Abraham said, or what is it that, that God said, I had withheld you from touching her? Uh, verse 15, Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before thee, dwell there where it pleases. And unto Sarah he said, Behold, I have given thy brother a thousand pieces of silver, 
to be a covering before thine eyes. Abraham prayed unto God. This is where they had been judged. And God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maid, and they bare children, for the Lord had closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. I wrote down verse 2. I didn't think that was right, but let's go back and read it. Uh, Genesis 20 and verse 2. Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she's my sister, and Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, thou art but a dead man, for the woman that thou hast taken, she's a man's wife. And Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, wilt thou slay a righteous nation? And she said unto me, for she said unto me, she's my sister. And she even in herself said, he's my brother. And in the integrity of my heart and innocency of my hands, I've done this. And God said unto him, yea, I know that thou didst this in the integrity of thine heart, for I withheld thee from sinning against me. Therefore suffered I thee not to touch her. I mean, the influence of the Holy Spirit was on this pagan king, Abimelech. Now, there's no implication here because Abimelech did one good thing and didn't didn't have any relationship with Sarah, didn't commit adultery, that he's somehow going to make it in the kingdom. But yet he was used by the Holy Spirit. He was influenced by the Holy Spirit. Something to think about. Let me quote to you from different individuals that have brought these things out. How about Spurgeon, for example? You've all heard of Charles Spurgeon. Here's what he said about this. The Holy Spirit works in two ways. In some men's hearts, he works with restraining grace only, and the restraining grace, though it will not save them, is enough to keep them from breaking out into open corrupt vices in which some men indulge who are totally left by the restraints of the Spirit. I mean, the Holy Spirit restrains men from becoming totally depraved. We we are born depraved, but that doesn't mean that we are depraved as we could become. We're born in sin, but to be totally depraved is where one has hardened their conscience to the place to whereby they are almost as a beast, so to speak. Can you think of whom might fall into that category? Well, I would think of some in the sense of some that have become very perverse in their lifestyles. Some like um, serial killers, for example, would be another. I mean, some serial killers, you know, not only do they kill for pleasure, but torture and maim and everything. I mean, they've become... Uh, brutal compared to the Sunday school teacher um, or compared to someone like, um, what was that one famous nun years ago that lived in India, Mother Teresa. Obviously, there's a big difference between the two. But if Mother Teresa thinks that she's going to make it in the kingdom by her acts of kindness and love and mercy, if she made it, she'd be the first to tell you it wasn't by that. It wasn't by works of righteousness, which she did. Men can do good works, but the good works are not the way into salvation. But that doesn't mean that all men are going to have the same degree of uh, depravity. Depravity is something that, that occurs over a person's lifestyle. I mean, little Zach's not even a year old, not even a, a week old. The Bible says he needs to be born again. 
The Bible says that he was conceived and born in sin. The Bible says he has a depraved heart. But along the way, we believe Jesus will open his heart, touch his heart, he'll become born again. But until that period, you'll see where there will be a, uh, a time of, of moving in a direction to bring out their true nature. And if, they, if, if the grace of God doesn't turn someone around, the older they get, the more sinful they get. What was it that when Jesus, they brought forth a woman before him and said, this woman was caught in adultery. The law says, stoner, what do you say? And he wrote on the ground, he ignored him, and he said, he that is without sin cast the first stone. And it goes on to say that the oldest to the youngest, that was the order. They got to thinking about their own life, and from the oldest to the youngest, they departed and left. They didn't, you know, the conviction of the Holy Spirit was there. But let me go back and read Spurgeon. I don't mean to butcher this up. It goes on to say, God the Holy Spirit may work in men some good desires and feelings and yet have no design of saving them. But mark none of these feelings or things that accompany salvation. For if so, they would be continued. But he does not work omnipotently to save except in the person of his own elect, whom he has assuredly brings unto himself. I believe then that the trembling of Phoenix is to be accounted for by the restraining grace of the Spirit, quickening his conscience and making him tremble. You remember the case of Felix when Paul preached unto him the gospel. He trembled, but he didn't go on to become uh, saved or a Christian. Here's another who speaks along these lines. This is A.W. Payne. The Holy Spirit has been robbed of much of his distinctive glory through Christians failing to perceive his varied workings. In concluding that the operations of the Blessed Spirit are confined unto God's elect, they have been hindered from offering to him that praise which is his due for keeping this wicked world a fit place for them to live. Few today realize how much the children of God owe to the third person of the Trinity for holding in leash the children of the devil and preventing them from utterly consuming Christ's church on the earth. It is true there are comparatively few texts which specifically refer to the distinctive person of the Spirit as reigning over the wicked, but once it is seen that in the divine economy all is from God the Father and all is through God the Son and all is by God the Spirit, each is given his proper separate place in our hearts and thoughts. Something to think about. These works are not, certainly not, on the same level and the, as the superior works found in the elect. For example, obviously agape love is love that comes forth by the Holy Spirit, but yet there is a lot of human kindness that can come forth from people. Now that human kindness that comes forth from people, that's not the devil bringing it forth. The devil's tempting them not to bring forth what they bring forth. So they resist that temptation to do what the devil wants them to do, and by knowing intuitively their conscience bearing witness to what they have been taught, they bring forth human kindness. I mean, you could apply this, take for example, in some of the catastrophes that have occurred in the last few years, 
Katrina, for example. I got a pair of Tasami, but I know that's not the right way to spell it. But there have been uh, Tasamis that have come forth. Katrina is a, a huge hurricane that come forth. How do you pronounce it? Tsunami? Okay. I, uh, all right. Okay. I stand corrected. Or uh, recently, the earthquakes in Chile. <laughs> in Chile. Okay. Now, what, what, what did you see when those things occurred? Haiti would be another. What did you see? A lot of human aid rushing in to alleviate the suffering of those people. Now, certainly there were some true Christians that were bringing forth humanitarian aid as a good work by the Holy Spirit. They were directed by the Holy Spirit to do that. But would you say that every single person that went in to alleviate the suffering of the humanity that was there was a born-again Christian and that it was a fruit of the Spirit? No, I wouldn't say that. But at the same time, the works and the humanitarian aid that went in was not something that would give them salvation. It was, though, a good work. It was something that was attacking what the devil did. I mean, it was the devil that destroyed, and it was the influence of the Holy Spirit. It's the image of God that was written upon the hearts of men and women that they should, they know intuitively that they should help their fellow man, that they should help their brother. For example, well, look at 1 Timothy 5 and verse 8. Uh, this one talks about how that evil men will wax worse and worse unless something restrains them. Uh, if you take the restraints, if you took the influence of the Holy Spirit off this earth today, not just the believers, but just uh, take the believers away. That'd be one major thing. You'd find where the true nature of man is going to come forth and the theory of evolution is going to get down the train drain mighty quick. First Timothy 5 and verse 8. Oh, I remember now. He's talking here about providing for widows in, in your home, family. He says, honor widows, verse 3, that are widows indeed. And then he describes what a widow indeed is. If any widow has children or nephews, let them learn first to show piety at home and to be requite and to take care of their parents. For that is good and acceptable before God. Now, that is God's will. That is God's plan. How many of you know people, for example, that have elderly mothers or elderly fathers that uh, when they have nothing else, I mean, we got obviously Social Security and stuff in this country, so it may be hard to uh, discern. But where that is absent, what would you find? You would find that sons and daughters would rise up to be there to help their parents. It's something that is intuitively known unto them. It is written on their conscience because one of the Ten Commandments is what? Honor your father and mother. And so intuitively they know that. They know that they're to do that. But does honoring your father and mother make you a Christian? No. If it's a lifestyle that is there, that's an indication of a righteous heart. But there are a lot of unrighteous people that would do that. 
The rich young ruler had a whole list of the Ten Commandments that he followed and obeyed. He had a whole list of things that he did good. Yet he lacked on one. Now, do you think it was the Holy Spirit? Do you think it was the devil that was influencing the rich young ruler to bring forth those good works that were in obedience and commandment to God? He's the tempter. He's the deceiver. He's the thief. He is the one that would be seeking to get that rich young ruler to whereby he would not do those things. I mean, the tempter would be one that would be tempting him to commit adultery, not resist the temptation to commit adultery. But he's also a deceiver in that when he can't stop the person from doing that, he deceives him into thinking that the good things that he does are the means and way to salvation, which is a deception and wrong. But obedience to the law of God that has been written is the influence of the Holy Spirit who inspired the law to be put into place and moved upon men to obey it. They're not saved by what they do, but by what they do, it is a work of the Spirit. First Timothy chapter 5 and verse 8, he goes on to say, these things, verse 7, give in charge that they may be blameless, because he talked about the widow, and if any provide not for his own, especially for those of his own house, he's denied the faith. He is worse than the infidel. Because he says the infidels do what is right. That doesn't make them righteous, that's self-righteousness. But they do what is right, and so for one not to do that, he's worse than that. Do you see what we're saying? So what would be some ways that the Holy Spirit would work and it would involve unbelievers? Let me give you a few things and I'll stop. One would be in the restraining of evil. If men were left to their own natural corruptions, wickedness would swallow up this earth. What stops terrorism? I'm asking you the question. What stops terrorism today? It is... I don't want to hear. It is the presence of righteous authority. You know what I'm saying? We just recently got back from flying out to Arizona. And we didn't know what to expect since this Detroit panty bomber had you know, tried to blow up a plane by putting plastic explosives or whatever in his underwear. We didn't know what to expect because every time I've gone through the security system, you know, they frisk me and everything else. So I thought I might have to skin down to my skibbies, which had really gotten, you know, some excitement going in that. I can, I can, I can hear O'Hare now. Woo! Get over to gate eight! You know. Well, they make you take your shoes off and everything metal. You know, you, you got to get stripped down to anything metal's got to go. Belts, shoes, and all that kind of stuff. So the only, and then and then afterwards you're brought out and they frisk you from your ankles up. They do me anyways. I mean I must look like a a terrorist, haha. But uh, <laughs> but what prevents the surge of terrorism? We haven't we haven't had very many terrorist attacks in this country since 9/11. What what prevents that? Well. I believe that God moved upon the President of the United States to enact and put things in place like Homeland Security and various other different secure forces that he uses 
to do a work of uh, protection, to give us peace in this country. Romans 12 confirms that. We've read it many times. He says, the powers that be are ordained of God. Come on, you're with me. Do I have to go over there and read that and take this longer than I need to? There, there are no powers but of God. God has ordained for the police force and so forth to be here enacting laws, enforcing laws to keep what? Sin in check. So does that mean, do we, do we say, okay, because a policeman takes and stops someone from uh, mugging and robbing and raping and killing someone, that's a good thing. The devil comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Police come along and do just the opposite. They seek to stop those that kill, steal, and destroy. That's not the devil working against the devil, or you'd have the kingdom of, the, of darkness divided against itself. That is the influence of God using ungodly people to carry out His will and purpose on the earth. That's a good thing. Does that mean then that every man in law enforcement or every woman in law enforcement is saved? No. Doesn't mean that. But can you all say with me, yes, it is a good thing? It is. You see what I'm saying? So with that thought in mind, that's what I'm trying to say. When we don't always discern the Holy Spirit working because we automatically have got it locked up in our heads that it has to be a Christian doing it. Well, the Christian's going to bring forth supernatural things and not the, not the ungodly. But at the same time, you can't limit good deeds to being done only by those that are good and righteous. I can remember one time where um, my wife and I were having trouble with a furnace in our home other than the one we got today. We don't have a furnace. Now we're all electric. But lightning hit the neighbor's tree and it knocked our, our furnace out. It was pretty much a brand new furnace. And at that time I was working in a factory and I can remember telling one guy that I worked with, I was always witnessing to him about the Lord and God healing and providing and blessing and this, that and the other. And he was, a, I think he was Church of Christ or Nazarene, one of the two. Not that I'm knocking those denominations, but he was, he just was anti-supernatural anything. Anti-anything that, um, well I told him, I said, you know, we would pray for different things. We didn't have any money in those days, so if we wanted something, we'd pray for it. And God would somehow work a way to provide it. And I was sharing it with him. And so when my furnace broke, we didn't have any money to call in somebody like Nate to come in and fix a furnace. You know. <laughs> well, we didn't. Man, it cost a lot of money. So anyway, we prayed and we said, Lord, please fix our furnace. And so I went to work the next day, no furnace. And I mentioned that I didn't have a furnace and... Uh, I know I didn't ask him to come over. Forget, I just shared one. We didn't have one, but I think I said God will take care of it, whatever. He showed up at the door that evening with a part, fixed the furnace. We said, praise God. Give him a loaf of bread because he didn't have any money. You know, like like uh, banana nut bread or whatever. And the next day he was kind of boasting or bragging about Helping out, and I said, yeah, you were an answer to prayer, because we prayed and asked the Lord to send somebody over to fix the furnace. Oh, he got mad. He got really upset. The very thought that God had used him to answer my prayers was just beyond his theology that he could handle. 
And I had to laugh about it because he got used and didn't even realize it. So the point is this. God can use individuals to be his instrument to do something good, and that individual does not necessarily have to be a righteous person. Pilate, for example, do you remember where he, where he said to Jesus, don't you know that I have the power to uh, destroy you or let you go? He said, what? You don't have any power at all except that we're given you from above. Pilate had his power given given unto him from God. And my other place is Genesis 6-4 talks about the flood. I'm all implying there that, that there's a case where the earth had come to a point to whereby God said, I'm going to wipe it out and start all over again because the only righteous influence on the earth from a human being at that point was one family. Eight people. Eight. So think about that. That might be the size of your family. I had nine. But your family, out of all the families on the earth, only one righteous? Boy, that's getting real down there and slim picking, but that's what it was. Secondly, the Holy Spirit can incite good actions, or he can move upon people to do good things. I guess the family is an excellent illustration here, because how many times has... I believe the influence of the Holy Spirit moved upon men and women to show love and kindness under their husbands, under their wives. I mean, the devil is the father of divorce. The devil is the father of division and destruction. It's God the Father who has foreordained for the family unit in itself to be as it is, to raise and train children, to bring them up in the fear and nurture and admonition of the Lord, the husband to love his wife, the wife to love and respect her husband. That is the divine order that God has established. And when you see men and women turning and changing and seeking to work in their families to bring about more a more respectful attitude toward the husband, a more loving attitude toward the wife, a more responsible attitude in regard to raising children with a level of morals that are there, those acts of love and kindness and respect are all good works. But that doesn't mean that a man's going to make it into the kingdom because he loves his wife. Or the wife's going to make it into the kingdom because she was submissive to her husband. They make it into the kingdom of God because Jesus Christ died for their sins on the cross. But they're all good works, and those works are something that are uh, inspired, and those works are all something that are are influenced by the Holy Spirit. And just a couple other things, and I think I'll close because I've made the point, and I don't have to keep getting too technical. Look at Romans chapter 2 and verse 15. The Holy Spirit has written the law upon the hearts of all men. Of all men. And so it is his convicting work, his illuminating work of them hearing the Word of God, knowing the Word of God, maybe to not a a saving degree or a great knowledgeable degree, but they know enough. That's why it's 
not a, that's why it's a good thing, for example, like where years ago you'd find where on courthouse walls and stuff, they might have posted the Ten Commandments. There's nothing wrong with that. It's written on their heart. It confirms to a man what is right and what is wrong. He knows that intuitively. It doesn't make him saved by just doing some of those things. The rich young ruler is proof of that. But at the same time, it keeps morality, it keeps uh, depravity in check. So let me just read this, this last screen and I'm going to close. The Holy Spirit does a work of conviction of sin. Romans 2.15 says, verse 14 says, um, For when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves which show the work of the law written in their heart, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or excusing one another in the day when God should judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. He's, all men will be judged. In, in the case of the believer, the judgment won't be to determine whether or not they make it in the kingdom. That's already determined when they receive Christ as their Savior. But with the lost, their judgment will entail different degrees of punishment. The Bible talks about some will be beaten with many stripes. Some will be beaten with lesser stripes. If you can fathom this in your mind, there are degrees of hell, degrees of punishment. And men and women that have chosen to live a more moral life in the life that they live, yet not receiving Christ as their Savior, will not be tortured in hell to the degree that some would be that are reprobate because they gave themselves over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are inconceivable. This is what he talked about in Romans 1. Verse 18, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness in men who hold back the truth in unrighteousness. They could be an influence under their children. They could be a role model to their children. They could be a role model to the community. Think, for example, I mean, just recently there was a sheriff or a police chief. It might be the police chief. I won't mention the city on tape. But it was near Lima, Ohio. And he had gotten involved where he purchased guns from Smith & Wesson for a certain price and then turned around and, made, and had the city pay for them under another price so there was money left over. And I think there was some things that were confiscated from drug raids or whatever, and that money also was used uh, for other than what had been set up by his employer, the city. And he'd got involved in some pornography and some, some other stuff. I don't know all the details, but when he went to court, he was found guilty, and the judge sentenced him to two years in prison for what he did. Why? Because he was to be a an upstanding role model for the community, and instead he abused the authority and he was not. So he got the greater degree of punishment than maybe someone else would have. He was holding back the truth, holding back what was right by the way that he lived, and that's what God's talking about. Because that which may be known of God is manifested in them, for God has shown it unto them. 
And God's holding them accountable for that, for what is right. The invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things which are made by his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imagination. Their foolish heart became darkened. It, it was darkened. It became more darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like unto corruptible man, birds, four-footed beasts, creeping things. Wherefore God gave them up to their uncleanness, through the lust of their flesh, to dishonor their bodies between themselves, who change the truth of God into a lie and worship and serve the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forevermore. And he goes on, he talks about perversionary, he talks about homosexuality, he talks about how that men who know the judgment of God, verse 32, that commit such things are worthy of death, they not only do it, but they have pleasure in them that do it. They turned against and became more and more rebellious. Some people get light and live by that light. That doesn't mean that they're saved until they get the light of whether or not they see that they still are a sinner in spite of their good works. It's filthy rags to God, the Bible says in the book of Isaiah. So all men are born sinful and depraved, but they are not as worse as they could become. There is a progression in their depravity. And it's the Holy Spirit that influences them and can use them to a certain degree if, if and obviously their will is involved here, but even God can, can control that. So the point is, and I think I'll wrap this up, the point is that it's a, it's, it's a mystery, and I'm not suggesting I've got the full knowledge upon it, but the Holy Spirit can still bring forth His works and good things through those that are not saved, that are not born again. He does that to keep His influence on the earth so this earth in which we live does not go into total, complete depravity. So when you and I... When you and I are praying and asking God for help and wanting Him to do something for us and so forth, have you ever seen where sometimes that is answered or done by those that are not saved? He did, he's done it throughout the Bible in many places. But it is God using someone to do a good work for us, and it is still God because it is Him that is carrying out. He said he'd set a table before us in the presence of our enemies. He'd use our enemies sometimes to bless us. So his workings are not to be limited just to those that are born again. He can sometimes bring forth his eternal plan and purpose through someone that is not born again. It doesn't make him saved, but it's still his workings that are coming forth. Something to think about, and as these, and the more you think about it, the more the Holy Spirit will confirm it, and you'll see it, and you'll find that in many ways God is using people to be a blessing unto you, and they don't even know it themselves. Father, this is kind of a complicated subject and area to cover, but I pray that 
the Holy Spirit would confirm it to our hearts and bear witness in our hearts. I pray that what I've shared would be food for thought and that we can have it confirmed and see what the Scriptures are saying. And it would enable us to understand your workings to a greater degree, that we honor you, glorify you, thank you, and learn not to limit your power to some preconceived notion and idea that we have come up with because of maybe some way that you worked in the past. Bless us with wisdom and understanding, please, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Food for thought. God bless.